0: Welcome back to another episode of Parker's Pensies, a podcast dedicated to exploring thoughts on philosophy theology, nature, and life. I love thinking about interesting things, so come think with me. In today's episode, we're answering the question, Could Siri, Alexa, or Bixby be my best friend? We'll also be looking at the more foundational question, What is friendship? Now in order to answer these questions, I want to first look at the philosophy of friendship, then delve into a bit about the philosophy of artificial intelligence, and finally, we'll finish with a theology of friendship. But first, why the question? Well, AI, artificial intelligence, it's, it's in the air today. There's that movie Her, where Joaquin Phoenix falls in love with an AI. There's Blade Runner 2049, where an AI has a love affair with a, another AI, which is like a less programmed version of of AI it's everywhere we talk about it all the time it's in all of our movies it's just assumed that AI is a thing it's here and it's part of our life and you know admittedly it's it's a little clickbaity i wanted to get you guys here i wanted you guys to listen to this podcast but i also think it's an interesting question to broach the AI question and introduce us to the philosophy and theology of friendship But even more pragmatically, like it could actually be the state of affairs which you're living in. If you're an Apple conformist, that is, if you're in the Apple cult, if they've trained you to bash every other brand of phone through their clever indoctrination, then you probably rely on Siri for a lot of stuff. You ask her to help you get to where you need to go. You ask her to remind you When your most important meetings are, you rely on her to give you countdowns and set timers. She helps you uh, get in contact with all of your other friends. She tells you the weather so you know what to wear. She's always there when you need her. And she's always listening. (laughs) I I hope that freaked you out a little bit. But for those who rely more on Alexa or Bixby, the same can apply to them as well. So are these AIs, if they are AIs, Are they your best friends already? If not, could they or their future iterations ever become your best friends? So let's jump right into the philosophy of friendship to get a more fine-grained look at what we're talking about, the philosophy of friendship. I want to start with two quotes to kind of prime our pump. Without friends, no one would want to live, even if they had all other worldly things. Aristotle, Nicomachean Ethics, Book 7. To the ancients, friendship seemed the happiest and most fully human of all loves, the crown of life and the school of virtue. The modern world, in comparison, ignores it. Affection and eros, romantic love, were too obviously connected with our nerves, too obviously shared with the brutes. You could feel these tugging at your guts and fluttering in your diaphragm. But in friendship, in that luminous, tranquil, rational world of relationships freely chosen, you got away from all that. This alone, of all loves, seemed to raise you to the level of gods or angels. C.S. Lewis, The Four Loves So, life isn't worth living without friendship, yet friendship isn't as compulsory as romantic urges. So, what is this friendship stuff? Well, the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy, uh, actually this one's for free, if, if you call it SEP around philosophers or, or theologians, you'll sound like an insider, you'll sound awesome. So, you know, as the SEP entry on friendship says, friendship is a distinctively personal relationship that is grounded in a concern on the part of each friend for the welfare of the other, for the other's sake. And that involves some degree of intimacy, as such, friendship is undoubtedly undoubtedly central to our lives, in part because the special concern we have for our friends must have a place within a broader set of concerns, including moral concerns, and in part because our friends can help shape who we are as persons. The SCP entry goes on to list three criteria for friendship. But first, it's important that we see friendship as an interpersonal relation, that is to say, Friendship takes place between persons, so we need to define persons, and this is going to be kind of tricky, philosophically speaking. Ethicist Peter Singer, who we've mentioned in in prior podcasts, in his essay, Chimpanzees chimpanzees are People Too, in response to the question, what is a person, says, we can trace the term back to Roman times and show that it was never limited to human beings. Early Christian theologians debated the doctrine of the Trinity, that God is three persons in one. Singer explains that if persons meant human being, that doctrine would be plainly contrary to Christian belief. For Christians hold that only one of those persons was ever a human being. And of course he's referring to Jesus Christ taking on flesh. And Singer is of course right that personhood is not limited to or synonymous with human being. But Singer goes on to argue that chimpanzees are persons and that we should thus end their wrongful imprisonment, by which he means their captivity in local zoos. So I, I think Singer is is right and then completely wrong. I think he's right that personhood is not limited or synonymous with human being, but I do not follow him in thinking that chimpanzees are persons too. Although I'd be open to thinking about and debating the ethics of uh, modern zoos. Yeah, I I think he, he may have a point there, but definitely not that chimpanzees are persons. So instead, let's look at philosopher Roger Scruton, who takes a different course from Singer, and he seeks to find a special place for persons which excludes the rest of the animal kingdom. Scruton explains that the term person comes to us from the Latin persona, which originally referred to the theatrical mask, and hence to the character who spoke through it. The term was taken up by the Roman law to denote the right and duty-bearing subject of the law, and it found a home in philosophy when Boethius defined person as an individual substance of rational nature, suggesting that a person is essentially, essentially a person, and therefore could not cease to be a person without ceasing to be. Scruton goes on to explain that in Kant the idea of the individual substance takes second place, and reason steps forward to replace it. The crucial feature of the rational being for Kant is not substantial unity or the capacity to follow arguments, but self-consciousness and the use of I. It is because I can identify myself in the first person that I am able to live the life of the rational being. And this fact situates me in the web of interpersonal relations from which the basic percepts of morality derive. Elsewhere, Scruton summarizes the position of Kant, which he himself affirms, in saying that, according to Kant, the kind to which we belong is that of person. And persons are by nature free, self-conscious, rational agents, obedient to reason, and bound by the moral law. And it is this theology, or sorry, it is this theory that raises human beings, quote, Infinitely above all the other beings on Earth, which is a quote directly from Kant in his anthropology from a pragmatic point of view, which Scruton cites in his on human nature book. Okay, so it's kind of hazy, it's kind of foggy. We got like this this sense of I ness in here. We'll get into a little bit more of, of personhood when we go to the theology of friendship, but for now, we have a, a, a kind of loose understanding of personhood. So now let's move on to the three necessary conditions of friendship. Mutual caring, intimacy, and shared activity. Again, I'm pulling this from the SCP entry. Mutual caring. A necessary condition of friendship, according to just about every view, is that the friends each care about the other, and do so for her sake. In effect, this is to say, That the friends must each love the other. Intimacy. The degree of intimacy characterizes the quality of the friendship. The more intimacy, the better the friendship. And shared activity. Friends engage in joint pursuits, in part motivated by the friendship itself. Friends hang out with friends because they're friends. So why even ask about friendship with our AIs? Alexa, Siri, or Bixby are always there to serve you, right? It it seems like they care. There's some mutual caring going on there, maybe. They never say, no, screw you, go do it yourself. They're always there at your beck and call. Intimacy, well, who knows your wants, desires, and thoughts better than your AI? And shared activity, everywhere you go, they're right there with you. And they've heard all your secrets. They've heard you at your worst, and yet they're still here for you. Okay, so, so now this brings us to the philosophy of artificial intelligence. And right away we run into a simple refutation of the idea that Siri, Alexa, and Bixby, or any other weak form of AI, could ever be our best friends, or even a friend at all. So this brings us to the problem of strong AI. Now, strong AI, or AGI, artificial general intelligence, is the view of AI we see in all the movies today. It's this digital consciousness, this super intelligence that's like us but smarter, has this first-person perspective, um, usually like maniacal, wants to take over the world. You create it, and as soon as you do, it starts conniving and thinking through this scheme to take down humanity. Or sometimes it's it's like so aloof and uh, ethereal that it realizes that this world is limited and it transcends the planet or the dimension and it's gone. But remember back to our discussion of friendship. We said that friendship is an interpersonal relation, an interpersonal relationship between persons. Now for friendship to exist, you need at least two persons. And we've already seen that you don't have to be a human being to be a person. So just because Alexa, Siri and Bixby aren't humans doesn't necessarily mean they aren't persons capable of interpersonal relations like friendship. But, while Alexa may sound like a person, it is not. The engineers at Apple have worked hard to make Siri seem pretty personal, but it is not a person. And though Bixby is capable of machine learning, though I haven't installed Bixby or or used him at all on my own phone, even though he's, he's capable of this machine learning, Bixby is a program and not a person. So there's this philosophical problem with the idea of machines and, and anyone uh, any future artificial intelligence, any advanced version of them, engaging in mutual caring, engaging in intimacy, and engaging in shared activity with us. They have syntax, but they have no semantics. There is no, in, there's no understanding going on inside of them. Now, syntax is the arrangement of words and phrases to create well-formed sentences in a language. Think about a set of rules for language. English has a syntax, and we're supposed to learn this in our grammar schools, but I'm afraid we don't learn it very well, or at least I didn't. There are these rules governing the ordering of verbs and nouns and modifiers and all sorts of stuff in the English language, and I had to learn this by learning Greek. I had to go back and learn English grammar so I could understand what the heck my Greek profs were talking about. That's the syntax, the ordering, the logical rules of the language. But there's also semantics, and semantics has to do with the meaning in language or in logic. So you put all the words, you put the noun here, you put the verb here, but those things still have to mean something. We have, as humans, we have a syntax for our language, and we have a semantics which makes the language mean what it means. And now with this in hand, we can look at John Searle's Chinese Room argument, which demonstrates the problem of strong AI. Strong AI, again, is that, AI that we all think of when you think of artificial intelligence. So, John Searle's Chinese room argument against strong AI AI is an argument that says, lock me in a box, lock me in in a room with two slots, and I don't understand Chinese at all. But you've given me this key to understanding different symbols, Chinese characters, right? I'm not actually understanding, but I have a list when this character comes in, you reply with this character. When this sentence comes in, you reply with this sentence. I still have no understanding of the semantics of the Chinese language, but I'm able to interpret the syntax because I have this key. So I'm just manipulating symbols. There's no understanding. I'm just manipulating symbols based on this key. So some Chinese gentlemen slip in this note of Chinese characters. I look at it, and then I consult the key. I see, oh, there's this sentence, this sentence, and this sentence. I'm supposed to respond with this one, this one, and this one. So I write this down, and I slip them through the out slot. And everyone on the outside of the door goes, "Wow, he really understands Chinese! Holy cow!" Well, no, I actually don't understand Chinese at all. I'm manipulating symbols. I'm playing around with syntax in the proper way, but there's no understanding. I don't understand. Chinese. No matter how good I get at manipulating these symbols, how fast I can do it, I still don't know what's being said. And Searle says this is what's happening. This is what's happening with a CPU, a central processing unit inside of a computer. There's there's no human understanding. There's no sentience. There's no personhood. There's nothing going on inside there but the manipulation of symbols. There's syntax, for sure, but there's no semantics. And so these are actually weak AIs, Siri, Alexa, and bixby They're not conscious. There's nothing that it's like to be Alexa, Siri, or Bixby. There is no observer independence, as Searle says. Now, they have observer relative intelligence, that is, conscious observers can attribute intelligence to them, but they are not intelligent in and of themselves. They're not free, conscious, let alone self-conscious. They're not moral agents bound by reason and the moral law. So an observer like me who has observer independence, even if no one's looking at me, I am conscious. I know I'm conscious. I'm a conscious being. I don't need anyone to interpret it for me or to say that I am intelligent. I Maybe I'm not that intelligent, but I, I'm a intelligent being, right? I have observer independence, but Bixby doesn't. Now you and I can come along and say, wow, it looks like Bixby is intelligent. We can interpret Bixby that way. We can use semantics and do that. But Bixby can't. Bixby's not like us. He doesn't have a fir- There's no he. It uh, does not have a first-person perspective. It's not conscious. And if you're not conscious, you can't be self-conscious. It's not moral. It's not bound by reason. It's just a thing. It's a program running on your phone. Siri is not a whom. There is no first-person perspective there. It can't engage in interpersonal relations because it's actually not a person. So no, Siri, Alexa, and Bixby cannot be your best friend. So, So who cares? I mean, Parker, you're the one who brought up this stupid question in the first place. Why'd you bring it up? Well... It's an important clarification to make because friendship is intrinsic to our teleology, our telos, our purpose. We were created for deep personal friendships. So it's important not to let cheap imitations in where they don't belong. And this brings us finally to the theology of friendship. Now, I want to do a biblical theology of friendship with God. Now, every Christian should want their theology to be biblical, to be grounded in exegesis. Now, that's a word that needs definition for a lot of us. Uh, for, for me, too. Like, I needed, I needed to uh, define this at some point in my life as well. So, let's do that. According to the entry for exegesis in the Dictionary for Theological Interpretation of the Bible, exegesis is derived from the Greek word, and I'm going to mess this up, even though I should know it, exegesis, it doesn't matter because it's it's probably not pronounced like that in the original anyways. We use this thing called Erasmian pronunciation, which everyone admits is not. Anyways, who cares? Uh, I feel bad that I pronounced it wrong, so I'm justifying myself. Anyways, this uh, word can mean to lead or to explain. And the <clears throat> the dictionary goes on to say, valid exegesis will always involve an attempt to understand the historical and cultural context in which the communication arose, and by necessity, it lends more towards an author-oriented hermeneutic. They go on to say that exegesis is rightly assumed to be a foundational task for doing theology, because we need to understand the intent of the text before we build theological systems on it. The author acknowledges that we bring theology to the text initially, but exegesis should help shape and form and correct that theology when it's necessary. So the goal of exegesis is not merely information, but usable understanding. So exegesis is about getting the text right. What did the author intend to say when he said it, to whom he said it? That's that's the goal of hermeneutics, to read it properly, to read it in context, to get the meaning of the text, to get the semantics like we talked about earlier, and to get that as usable understanding in order to as Christians we want to apply that to our lives we want to preach it in church we want to let God's word loose in our lives to shape our being eisegesis on the other hand so we have exegesis right that's the good one eisegesis is the bad one eiseges um i always think of isolate i'm not i don't, I have no idea if the words are related but eisegesis is isolating it's importing meaning, which is unrelated to the text, into the text. You already have a conception of uh, what you think this text will be about, and you don't really care to exegete it. You're going to insert, whether intentionally or unintentionally, your own understanding into the text instead of trying to draw the proper meaning out of the text. And anytime I hear eisegesis and exegesis, I think of Jar Jar Binks saying, you know, eisegesis. And that that was a terrible Jar Jar Binks, but maybe that will be stuck in your head for now on. So, while biblical theology, in the sense of theology grounded in the verses of the Bible, is the goal always for the Christian, what I mean by biblical theology, here, for the rest of this section, is actually a specific way of doing theology. Biblical theology, according to Brian Rosner in the New Dictionary of Biblical Theology, is principally concerned with the overall theological message of the whole Bible. It seeks to understand the parts in relation to the whole. And as biblical theologian D. A. Carson explained in his course on biblical theology, which I took, which was awesome, systematic theology is theology ordered logically and topically. So that's that's systematic theology. You're, you're showing a system. You're trying to build the system of theology whereas biblical theology is disciplined reflection on God with temporal considerations taken into account. So it's a temporal discipline. It's focused on temporaneity, which I still don't know if that's a word. He said it in class. It's got to be. He's super smart, but I've never heard someone say temporaneity, and I'm still trying to use it, uh, find a, a use for it in just a natural conversation. So anyways, most helpfully, Graham Goldsworthy explains that biblical theology is a broad discipline and can incorporate synchronic studies which focus on a theological message in a limited time frame, like studying the theme of forgiveness in a single passage of Scripture. So you have this synchronic understanding of biblical theology, where you look at this exact passage and you say, what does this passage say about forgiveness? Or you look at this whole book of the Bible, what does the book of Job say about uh, the fear of the Lord? So that's synchronic. But then he also explains that there's this thing called diachronic, which diachronic means through time, right? Diachronic, through time. So that that's this longitudinal or diachronic study, which is through time. And this examines or traces a particular theme throughout part or the whole of the biblical canon. And biblical canon means all the books from Genesis all the way to Revelation. So Goldworthy explains that the diachronic approach is more likely to be concerned with progressive use of themes of theological motifs. Okay, so there's this progressive unveiling of God's plan in Revelation, It uh, in his revelation, not the book of Revelation. In revealing himself and his plan, he progressively reveals more and more and more and more. That's the contention of biblical theologians. And so, Uh, The diachronic method finds these seeds of theological truth in Genesis and they want to see those seeds blossom and grow and turn into this plant, I guess, and and then blossom uh, by the time we get to Revelation. So that's biblical theology. When we speak of biblical theology of friendship, we don't mean that we want our theology of friendship to be grounded in the Bible, though of course I do want that. But I actually mean a special kind, a specific kind of theology of friendship. So it's not, it's not a systematic theology of friendship, which would be more abstract, not, not considering time-boundness. It's this doctrine of what the entire Bible has to say about friendship. That would be a systematic approach. But instead we want a biblical theology which traces the theme of friendship as it is progressively revealed throughout Scripture. So I'm talking about a diachronic study of friendship, which is progressively revealed more and more throughout the Bible. And I'm not going to go super in-depth here, but I'll give you a little bit of taste. So what's really cool about biblical theology is that the entire story of the Bible can be seen through the perspective of friendship, through the the theme or the type. You can trace this type, uh, this typology, you can trace... Friendship from the beginning to the end, which is really cool, so think about it, Genesis one and two one and two you have this Shalom, this peace with God, and Shalom, that Hebrew word doesn't mean just lack of uh, enmity or strife, the lack of war, it means also positively it means flourishing. So you have this this Shalom in Genesis one and two. God creates the stage for the drama of history heaven and earth light and darkness day and night water and land sea creatures land creatures then finally the peak of his creation the imago dei the image bearer of god god creates self-conscious persons made in his very own image remember back to peter singer's objection that person cannot be synonymous with human beings and he was right but the theological account of personhood it's a top-down definition so human persons are created image bearers of the uncreated tripersonal God. We were created to be subcreators under his divine creative will. We were made to think his thoughts after Him, as creaturely reinterpreters, and we are made to be emulative lovers as we love Him and His creation just as He loves us. So we are created persons, and as such we image God in freely acting on our desires in enjoying self-consciousness, in being rational agents, and being obedient to revelation, to reason, as well as being bound by the moral law, which he wrote on our hearts and our consciences. Consciences. I keep messing up those words. He wrote it on our consciences. Now, angelic persons, angels, they're created messengers, but I'm kind of agnostic as to whether they are made in the image of God. I know that some theologians think they are back in the day and more modern ones don't really think that's the case. So I, I'm not really sure the I think the Bible is silent on that fact. So I don't know. It would be really easy to say yeah, so, you know, person is just either an uncreated person which is God or a created person which is image bearer including angels and humans. But I don't I don't know. <laughs> I don't think the Bible speaks to whether angels are image bearers. I don't think they are just personally but I don't know what else to call them. I think that they're persons. So anyways, maybe we could talk about that some other day when I learn more about angels. Anyways, let's get back to it. God creates man and then addresses man with speech to establish their interpersonal relationship, their friendship. God brings all the animals in front of man for him to name them, but he also shows him that there was none among them fit for him, not fit for him as a helper, because none of them were self-conscious persons on par with God's very own personal image, which Adam was. So here we see mutual caring, intimacy, and shared activity between God and between man. They're in the shared activity of naming animals, this intimate relationship where they're, they're working together, they're spending time together, and they care for one another. So after this lesson is learned, God creates woman for man. And this shows us that while animals can be awesome, our dog can never truly fit the role of man's best friend. I know that, that really hurts for your dog, people. It hurts for me. But I, I think it's, it's the case. So anyways, God created us for friendship with him and with each other. But then we see Genesis 3. We find enmity. The friendship is broken. Adam and Eve disobeyed God. And when given a chance to come clean, they, they kept passing the buck. So the buck gets passed from man to woman to serpent, each time insulting God, their creator. It was this woman that, that you created for me, God. She's to blame. And the woman says, you know, it was that serpent. It's all his fault, God. And just like that, our friendship with God was torn asunder. And today, this side of the cross, with so many Christians in the world and Christian theology being not really understood super well in our culture, but still just kind of latent, hanging around... This side of the cross, we tend to take friendship with God for granted. Of of course, God wants to be my friend. Like, who wouldn't want to? Do you, do you know me? Yeah, God's like this all forgiver. He sees what I do, but um, you know, he he forgives, right? Isn't he all forgiving, right? Of course, he would want to be my friend. Yeah, right. Because because who wouldn't want a rebellious sinner completely absorbed with himself as a friend, right? That's you. That's me. Anyways. From the end of Genesis 3 to the end of Revelation, we see God actually chasing down his people to restore their lost friendship. God chases his people down. His people continue to spit in his face. God continues to advance his plan to reconcile his image bearers back to himself. And this brings us to the greatest story of friendship ever told, which is known as the gospel, the euangelion, the good news. Jesus is our best friend. So I'll read a a quick passage here to show what I'm talking about, and that's John fifteen, nine through seventeen. It goes like this. This is Jesus speaking. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this so that you so that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be complete. My command is this. fruit that will last. And so that whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. This is my command. Love each other. Now here in this passage, we see mutual caring. Jesus says, As my Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Jesus wants his joy in his people, and he wants their joy to be complete. He chose and appointed his people, and Jesus laid down his very own life for his people. Mutual caring going on. We also see intimacy. Jesus says, remain in my love, keep my commands. He wants them to be unified in this intimacy with him. You are my friends, he says. You're not my servants any longer. I call you my friends. He has made known to his people everything which he learned from God the Father. So that intimacy which he has with the Father, he's inviting his people into that same intimacy with himself and with the Father likewise. Then we see shared activity, we see we see that we're called to love each other as jesus has loved us he appointed us to bear fruit just as he has and we are appointed to be good friends like our best friend jesus we're called to lay down our lives for our friends and to love one another this is shared activity this this is awesome this is this is good news god made us for friendship with him and with each other but we blew it we wrecked it, our friendship with god And thus, we destroyed the foundation for our friendship with each other. But God had a plan the entire time. And at the right moment, God made peace through the blood of the cross. Christ Jesus laid down his own life for the glory of the Father and the good of his friends. And through this blood-bought peace between God and man, we have a foundation for reconciliation between man and fellow man. And when I say man, I mean the collective man. So we have Reconciliation between man and fellow man, and woman and fellow woman, and man, and fellow woman, and child. We have peace because of Christ's peace. We can be friends with each other because we're friends with God. Whew! Alright, so let's, let's sum this all up. Friendship requires mutual caring, intimacy, and shared activity. When one of these is off, your friendship is in trouble. Friendship is an interpersonal relation, and since the so-called artificial intelligence are not true persons, they cannot truly be called our friends, certainly not our best friends. God made us for friendship with himself and with each other, but our ancestors broke the friendship between God and mankind and entered us into war with God. Although we were his enemies, each acting on our own sinful desires against God, he made a way back to himself, a way to crush the enmity which we brought into our relationship. And it was through this perfect life and sacrificial death of His one and only Son, the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ the Messiah. Through trusting in Him for the forgiveness of sins, we can once again enjoy mutual caring, intimacy, and shared activity with our Creator God. We can actually be friends of God. We can enter into a friendship with His redeemed people, which is the universal church. That, indeed, is some good news. We could talk about this more, and and perhaps someday we will, but for now, that will have to do. I hope you learned something cool and thought about something in a new way. This has been Parker's Pensies, and as always, all glory to our best friend, God.